Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Brendan O'Shea welcoming you to another edition of Tall Poppies, the podcast presenting Australian luminaries from abroad. It's nice to have you with me. Just before we meet today's guests, a few little reminders. Thank you firstly to those who sponsor the podcast. Your contributions allow me to continue my work. If you do indeed enjoy the program, you might like to consider sponsoring the podcast. To find out more about how best to do this, simply send us an email and we'll get back to you. Your sponsorship allows me to continue my work, which includes researching and interviewing my guests, editing and producing the podcast. To find out more, simply send an email to info at tool-poppies.com. That's info at tool-poppies.com. But even if you are unable to sponsor this project, you can help the program by sharing the link of the podcast around. To do this, simply repost the link to the Tall Poppies podcast on any social media or forward the link to friends and family in an email so they can also tune in. Remember, Tall Poppies, the podcast, is available on most platforms, including SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. If you want to find out more about our guests, simply visit our website where you'll find lists of their work, music titles and links to their websites. Remember, the Tall Poppies website can be found at tall-poppies.com. That's tall-poppies.com. You'll also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But enough of all that. Let's meet today's guest. I know I'm Australian. Conversely, when I'm on the aeroplane and you pass the middle point in the Middle East where you've stopped in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, and then the next plane that you get on, usually the captain or the air steward or someone has an Australian accent and says, we'll be flying into Melbourne in their great, with that great Australian twang. That's Siobhan Stagg, who hails from Mildura, a town in the Australian state of Victoria, close to the borders of both New South Wales and South Australia. After finishing high school in Mildura, Siobhan initially studied music at Melbourne University and later at the Wales International Academy of Voice in Cardiff. She's been the recipient of several scholarships, including the Australian International Opera Award and the Amelia Jocelyn Memorial Scholarship from the Dame Nellie Melba Opera Trust. Now, for those of you who don't recognise the name Nellie Melba, she was indeed one of Australia's most legendary opera singers who enjoyed an international career at the beginning of the 20th century. Siobhan Stagg's many accolades include first prize at the 2014 International Mozart Competition and first prize and audience choice award in the 2012 Mietta Song Competition. Since 2013, Siobhan has been a member of the ensemble at the Deutsche Oper Berlin, where her stage roles have included Pamina in Die Zauberflöte, Musetta in La Boheme, and Waldvogel and Voglinda in The Ring Cycle, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. 
She has also frequently been a guest at many other opera houses, including London's Royal Opera House, the Dutch National Opera, Munich's Bavarian State Opera and the Lyric Opera of Chicago. The way we hear a voice is subconsciously flavoured by that person, how they feel about the character or the role. It's not just what the notes look like on the page. On the concert platform, Siobhan has appeared as a soloist at events the likes of the Salzburg Mozart Woche and the BBC Proms, as well as with prestigious ensembles the calibre of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. I can remember that call clear as day because, I mean, it sounds cliche, but that was a phone call that changed my life completely. Mm. It took me from being, sure, a promising young artist working at an opera company to someone who suddenly was put on the stage in front of everyone was at that concert. a small excerpt from Brahms's Requiem sung by today's podcast guest Siobhan Stagg. She was accompanied there by none other than the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Incidentally, that entire performance is available in the orchestra's digital concert hall if, like me, you'd like to hear more. With a budding international career, you can imagine catching up with Siobhan Stagg was not an easy task. But I did manage to corner her backstage at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin, where she'd sung the part of Selina in a performance of Don Giovanni. But it wasn't opera we discussed when we first met, but a problem we both share, that being assisting Germans to pronounce our first names correctly. Yvonne, you and I probably have two of the most mispronounced names in Germany, actually. How do the Germans cope with your name, spelt, of course, S-I-O-B-H-A-N? A good Gaelic name, yes. The Germans, they try their best, I have to say, but um, it's a work in progress. But even growing up in Australia, having the name Siobhan wasn't so easy. But you come up with tricks. My trick for the Germans is to think of the name Yvonne, they know the name Yvonne, mm -hmm. so I usually say, think of the name Yvonne and just put sh at the start, and you'll be something close to Siobhan. <laughs> Siobhan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And of course, what's happened is you've just come off the stage just a couple of days ago from your premiere as Selena. Yeah, what, what's it like the days after you first premiere a new role? Yeah, I do think it's different in each situation, and when it's a revival in this way, we put it together in a shorter amount of time. I think it also depends where I'm working, so... The beauty of this production is that it's, I'm at home, I'm in Berlin. So in a way, it's sort of business as usual. It's not a very exciting answer, but in the days since the last performance, I've been coaching and preparing my next role. Made a quick trip to London for a work meeting and to have a sing there. So it's sort of, singer life is constantly trying to live in the moment with what you're singing right now, but also you're planning the years ahead. So it's a bit of, 
of a mixed bag in that way. But of course, the day after you reflect on the performance and think about what you would do next time differently. In this particular production, we have a week in between performances, which is quite rare. Often it's every second day. So then when I'm away doing a production in another city, it's more focused on that one piece usually. Doing a performance, going home, resting, getting ready for the next performance. But here they're quite spread out. You are, of course, in Germany, which is how involved in the politics of the two places that you're living, where you came from and where you live now, are you? I'm only involved in so much as I'm an observer. But I remember distinctly that period when Merkel invited, was it, what, 800,000 refugees. I remember it because I had got the train to Munich and at the Munich Hauptbahnhof when I got off the train, there were hundreds if not thousands of these refugees camping out at the train station, little children with holding teddy bears, um, people with their whole lives wrapped up in one bag, one suitcase or something. And it was really affecting to see that. And I actually thought it was wonderful that she had done this. I know there's been a bit of backlash, but personally I've only seen the positive signs of it. Beautiful ways of integration. So we did something here in the um, Tischlerai, the small black box theatre, last year where we had refugees involved in a kind of spoken chorus way. Not that you ask me my opinions about these things because they're always very complex and complicated, but to be honest, I only just watch the news and not really politically active in that way. Opera is tragically quite consuming in that way. We opera singers always often live in our own little bubble where we're just thinking about the next rehearsal we have to go to. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but sometimes it's important actually to put on the TV and or read the newspaper and really keep my eyes open to the real world that I do have quite a privileged existence in that way. Let's go back a little bit further. You mentioned already, right at the very beginning, you're from Mildura. Okay, Victoria, what about near the, the New South Wales border? Or Mildura is right up in the corner, mm. the northwest corner of Victoria. So yes, 10 minutes drive from New South Wales and about half an hour's drive from the South Australian border. It's really in between all the states, really. But I do think Mildurians uh, feel very strongly Victorian <laughs> somehow, um, especially with South. I think there's a bit of friendly competition with the South Australians. You know, Mildura's Victoria. But that said, Adelaide was actually the closest city. So we used to go to Adelaide for every holiday to go to the beach. Both my brothers went to university in Adelaide. And most recently, my parents have relocated to Adelaide. So now I'm not sure where home is. I mean, it was always Mildura, but uh, now a bit half of Adelaide as well, perhaps. Okay. And you still use the term home, yeah? Home is a movable idea, I would say, because I also describe Berlin as home but my adopted home, I would say, because I live here now with my husband and I've really got an established lifestyle. But of course, home is always where you're from. Once I said in an interview that home is wherever I have a good Wi-Fi connection, good enough to Skype (laughs) my loved ones. Yeah, not sure, it's everywhere and nowhere. It is indeed. You mentioned now, of course, going back to Australia and you're back there quite frequently. What's your experience been as far as the Australian music scene goes? Well, I don't know, to be honest, because I don't live in Australia, so it's hard for me to 
to put my finger on what the vibe is. I totally agree. We have great orchestras and great opera companies. I've seen, ama I've seen amazing um, things in Australia. Mm -hmm. But definitely the orchestra's top-notch. I think it's great that we've been able to attract international conductors to head most of them, all of them, in recent years. Maybe that was always the case. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But I think also the festivals are wonderful in Australia. There's great, great things going on in Australia. I always say to, to my peers over here in Europe, the only problem with Australia is that it's so far away. <laughs> But the actual things that go on there are great. Um, I love going back every year. I make a point of, of going back for at least one or two projects in Australia because it's such an important part of who I am, Australian. I mean, to get to sing with the symphony orchestras was a dream when I was a student. Well, I would always get the student rush tickets after lectures, get on the tram down Swanson Street in Melbourne and go to Hamer Hall and see the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Every time I go home, it's, it's really, really magic at home. I just use that home word again. I, I use home for wherever I'm not. <laughs> so I think it's really great. I mean, Australians have an openness and a friendliness that we all know about that's very special. Like when you walk into a cafe, the thing that gets, m gets me by surprise sometimes when I go back to Australia is walking into a cafe and the person that's working there says, oh, hi there, How how's your day been? And I think, do I know you? <laughs> have we met? Like I think it's a school friend that I've forgotten or something. But of course, it's just how we greet each other in Australia. <laughs> Years apart from uh, how we are in Berlin. <laughs> getting back to Mildura and growing up and actually deciding that singing was going to be your career. When I was growing up, it was not clear that I would become a singer. I mean, I always sang around the house and loved performing, but there's not really a tradition of classical music as such, or there, at least there wasn't when I was a child. So I grew up singing along to DVDs of musicals, Gilbert and Sullivan. There was a music theatre society in Mildura, so I did do shows with them. I felt actually that I hadn't been exposed to that much classical music when I was at school. But the good side about it being in a small place was that I got to sing at lots of different occasions. So when I arrived at Melbourne Uni, um, I actually had in some ways more performance experience than some of my peers who had grown up in the city. They had access to all the symphony orchestras and things at a very high level, which I didn't have access to. But being in a small town, I got to sing at every school fete. I sang at church every weekend. I sang the national anthem at every school assembly. So. I had a different sort of experience. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to Melbourne University and heard a symphony orchestra for the first time, I was like, oh my goodness, where have I been and what have I missed out on? So then I had a few years where I was just going to a concert every night to catch up on all this repertoire and this real classical world that I'd, that I'd been missing. But I, I never regret growing up in a country town. I actually think that I have a lot to thank, thank it for, that opportunity of being in a smaller place. What sort of tuition did you get? Well, vocal tuition, mm, do you mean? Mm. Um, I, had a, I started singing lessons when I was about 12 years old. That actually is a story in itself because I, I always sang around the house, but my parents aren't musicians and they had never had any music lessons or anything at school. It wasn't really part of our life or what we were used to. And then I sang Amazing Grace. I led Amazing Grace, rather, at my grandfather's funeral just to lead the hymn, having been singing... Um, my, my family couldn't stop me singing around the house. My brothers used to always say, shut up. Um, but supportive brothers. My, yes. But when I sang Amazing Grace at the funeral, that was the first time, I guess, that I'd 
shown my voice to people outside of my immediate family and a distant cousin as we were leaving the funeral actually slipped a card with a hundred dollars in it into my hand unbeknownst to my parents and inside the card said dear Siobhan this is for your first singing lessons so now that that had happened I guess my parents had to let me have lessons and once I'd started I wasn't gonna stop because I loved it so much that said the lessons at that stage were more it was more about performance it was more it's 15 years ago at least so it was the days of the of the cassette tape you know, and my singing teacher would record a backing track on the cassette tape and I would go home and learn the song and sing along with it. It's very different to what I now call singing lessons, but it was beautiful in its own way and, and I, yeah, I fell in love with singing. But it would still be quite a long time till I would discover that I could do this as my job, make a living from it. I had aspirations to be a vet at one stage. I actually did my work experience weeks in year 10. I don't know if it's still a tradition in Australia to do those two weeks of work experience but I did one at a vet clinic and one at a pharmacy both helped me quickly realize that neither of those professions were for me then I thought I would either do medicine or journalism actually was the other thing that I thought I was interested in and I did do a six-week holiday internship as a junior reporter at the local newspaper in Mildura and that's where I kind of realized that my main interest the things that I got the most excited about were the art stories, which were few and far between in Mildura. Mm-hmm. But I can remember one distinctly when Rob Guest, the musical theatre um, performer, was coming to Mildura to do a concert at the Mildura Art Centre. And I was sitting in the office at the, at the newspaper and I heard this and I jumped out of my seat and said, can I please do that story? And then I started to realise, yes, I think I have to go somewhere towards the arts, at least. Then again, it still wasn't clear till when I went to Melbourne University, I did arts and music because my parents they're very sensible people they they (laughs) said you know it's great that you love singing but it's good to look at other options and make sure that you are uh, employable so I was doing arts and um, Italian and linguistics still thinking that the journalism might be a path for me and then I joined the Trinity Choir which that actually is the thing that really took me into my singing world because for starters, it got me a passport. Until this point, I was just a child in the country, Australia. I mean, still a lot of Australians never leave Australia. And I had had no reason to leave Australia until that point. But that choir went on tours. So I had to get a passport. Of course, as soon as I left Australia, I wanted to discover more. And also, the choir is the first place that I was given solos to sing in concerts. So then that's when I started being on the, remotely on the path that I now am on. It's never really sure from the beginning what can happen with a voice. What a lot of people don't realise is how reliant you are actually on your coaches, your teachers in helping you to actually look at this instrument that you can't see. How was that development along the way? When did you start to work out the type of singing and the type of repertoire that was going to be right for you? And I guess that's changing all the time, right? It is changing all the time. It's a constant work in progress. But I guess it's you just put one foot in front of the other. So it's um, that's the most important thing. So if you think about where I started singing those musicals or terrible... <laughs> 
pop songs on the radio in Mildura and then I did do some um, AMEB exams so when I was still in Mildura. So that was my first taste of classical but very basic kind of folk songs and things. At Melbourne University I sang a lot of songs and there it was already quite clear that I... That's when I was singing in the choir. So I was still singing um, a lot of Mozart. But interestingly, that hasn't changed that much. I'm still very much a Mozart singer. What's a Mozart singer? Well, anyone can be a Mozart singer technically, but I, I guess people describe people who place an importance on singing very much in tune and with pure phrasing. I mean, it's a hard question to answer really, isn't it? Because it should just be music and good singing is good singing. It's another one of the things that I always say, actually. But some voices just tend to, le- tend to lend themselves to it. Or perhaps it's that the timbre... I mean, I didn't actually label myself a Mozart singer. That's just what people told me that I was. I guess that they heard the colour of my voice had a, um, a cleanliness, a warmth to it, perhaps that they for whatever reason, describe as Mozartian. I can't really answer that question because we don't ever hear our voices actually in the same way that other people do. I mean, I just sing how I sing and I was told that it suits Mozart. Mm. <laughs> I really respect the people that can do both because mm. I think a healthy vocal mechanism, a healthy technique can be applied to all genres. And some of the greatest singers in the world, I think, are pop singers. They, they could have probably sang opera, like, dare I say it, Barbara Streisand or Whitney yeah, Houston. I mean, they could, had they had that inclination, trained and had excellent operatic voices. But, uh, yeah, good singing is good singing. Next season, I take a step up in terms of the Fach, as we say in Berlin, that I'm mm-hmm. singing a bit more lyric with mm-hmm. Michaela in Carmen and I'm singing some Verdi these days, Gilda and Rigoletto, and um, my first Melisande and Cendrillon, which are both Zwischenfach roles, so mm-hmm. in between the mezzo and soprano Fach. So it's definitely a work in progress, but as you say, I, yeah, we're relying a lot on people all the time, but also on the other hand, learning how to trust your own instinct because Actually, the truth is we often have a hundred different people telling us what they think is right for our voice. And some of them we have to learn to politely disagree with and some we trust. It's, yeah, it's always a bit of a gamble, but I think if you're checking in regularly with people whose ears you trust and taking care of yourself, it mm. should be okay. No, it's very, very interesting and it's a very complex thing and a lot of damage can be done if people start to do the wrong things and, and all the rest oh. of it. So you've got to have those various mentors around you and those various people that you go back and listen to. So you've talked about where you're moving to at the moment. Tell us about the move through the various parts that you've done here. I think it's interesting for people to understand that there are premieres and there are what they call productions that they bring back to the stage after a long period of time. I think the Don Giovanni that you were in the other night is about 10 years old and so people already in this house know quite a lot about it. Tell us about the process of coming in and starting to learn a piece that everybody, possibly a couple of the singers around you know it much, much better and, and how you go about doing that as opposed to actually being somewhere for, a, for the very first premiere. It's true, it's a totally different system to how things are run in other opera companies, this Germanic Spielzeit where we, they do 40 pieces a year, six of which are new with the proper six-week rehearsal period built up from scratch and the other 
34 or something approximately, mm. which are revivals or Vida Aufnahme as we call them. I prepare exactly the same either way, obviously with my coach, memorizing all my parts and then the parts of the other singers. Uh, the difference is basically time. So with a new production, you have the luxury of time to really build something, to build the connections with the other people on stage from scratch and find something organic that works. Mm. When you're doing a revival in 10 days or however many days you may have, you don't have so much time. You have to quickly find a chemistry with people that sometimes you've met that day or the day before. Mm. So it, it's the best kind of training in that way. I mean, when I arrived here, I was straight out of university and I hadn't actually done, don't tell them this, but I hadn't actually done a fully staged opera before. And the first thing I was thrown into here was The Ring, conducted by Simon Rattle. So no pressure. And, um, and that was also a revival. It was the famous Goethe Friedrich production, which I think is 30 years mm. approximately mm-hmm. old. And so that was just baptism by fire. So what I did was just find someone, thankfully, so I was one of the Rhine maidens, the three Rhine Töchter at the start of Rheingold. And the uh, Flosshilde, the lowest voice, she was a bit older than us and had done opera before. Because also the, the second Rhine maiden was also a young artist like me. So we were both just kind of deer in the headlights, stunned what was going on. The third one has held our hands and said, it's fine, just go here, go here, this is how it works. And somehow we made it through to the other side. But that first year was really, I did 12 productions none of which were new productions actually, so they were all just throwing me in there. And it teaches you how to improvise, how, <laughs> how you have to really know what, what you have to take responsibility for your part. You can't be reliant on other people giving you a certain cue or looking at you a certain way or whatever it is that we sometimes rely on in a, in a preparation. You have to be totally self-sufficient. But I'm glad I had that chance because now when I do new productions, it feels like a luxury, really relax and a chance to to grow into a piece. Yeah, it's a very collegial world, isn't it, actually? The, the singers tend to have better understanding for each other than possibly other other folk as well because there's something that you're dealing with all the time it's this whole idea of it not being tangible and you know this instrument and it being so incredibly difficult and so affected by mood or the weather mm-hmm. or you might have had a cold two weeks ago and you're still not able to sing again mm-hmm. how sort of sensitive are you in that respect <laughs> i think a lot of singers are very sensitive creatures that's part of the difficulty i guess and we're all can get quite neurotic about getting sick. Less so in a fest system like this where we're part of a company because we're really lucky that if I get sick next week for Don Giovanni, thankfully I still earn my salary. I mean, maybe that's a bit... It's not nice to talk about money, but that's a reassurance because when you're a guest or a freelance artist, a lot of people don't realise that if you get sick and have to cancel a show, you just don't get a fee. So it can be really, really nice to be part of a company in that way. You just have a sense of stability and can help with that sensitivity to all the changes because it's true sometimes you have different technicians on a certain night who maybe change a light at a different bar later than you're used to or yeah people get sick all the time sometimes they have to soldier on and perform sometimes not I mean I do think that illness is something really important that people shouldn't sing when they're sick Mm. (laughs) because I had an experience where I never wanted to I'd never cancelled and I'd um 
you know, didn't like disappointing people and all these things. And then, of course, as is inevitably going to happen at some point, I got laryngitis, like just a really, really terrible chest infection and had no voice and basically should have just said that. And life would have definitely gone on. But I didn't realise. And I sang a performance. And then, of course, when you sing on laryngitis, you really, really lose your voice for a few weeks. Uh (laughs) So that was a, a big learning curve, but an important one actually to have early on because now, as any experienced singer will tell you, if you're really sick, it's better to cancel one performance and recover quickly in a few days' time than to soldier on and put, knock yourself out for weeks or months at a time. Mm. Then you can really be in trouble. Do you have any other rituals? You know, you often hear of singers, they do certain things. Krista Ludwig, who you did your masterclass with, used to not talk on the day that she was singing. She would whistle certain oh. tones and that would signal yes or no or come here or whatever. Yeah. You know, understandably... It's an incredibly fine mechanism there mm-hmm. and lots of people have different ways of doing it. What about you? Are you? Do you have a sort of a ritual when you've got a big premiere coming up? I think I have quite a lot of rituals actually, none of which are particularly bizarre or anything. I think Krista Ludwig's story to me would not work because, well, it depends. If I'm feeling vocally fatigued, yes, definitely, you wouldn't speak much on the day of a show. But... Actually, it's nice to kind of warm up gently by speaking to people in the morning. If I wake up and have to warm my singing voice up straight away, that's a bigger jump to me. But my rituals are more like I drink copious amounts of water, like extreme amounts of water because it's so important for your voice to be hydrated. And I read or at some point heard that it takes a couple of hours for water to get into your bloodstream. So by the time you actually feel thirsty, that's too late. I'm always going to be found with a bottle of water in my hand. The other things are I'm quite precious about my warm-up time. I need to have an hour to myself in a warm-up room. Not that I will sing for that hour. Some singers think, why do you warm up? I don't warm up and sing scales for an hour, of course not. But it's actually kind of more about meditation or just having that space to myself to focus and think about the task that's at hand or sometimes I lay on the ground and do some stretches. It really depends what I've been doing in the days beforehand or not, but... If I have that, that one hour to myself before I go into makeup, before I get on my costume, then usually I'm, I'm relaxed and ready to go. Other than that, I don't have any strange things. I like to eat bananas and um, <laughs> avocados at interval. <laughs> I do have to eat, though. Some singers say that they don't eat before a performance. Mm. Oh, I can't do that. I would just pass out on stage, I think. No, I know some that used to have to eat a steak beforehand. I, can, I think steak is a good idea because yeah. it's filling but it doesn't make you feel really bloated. <laughs> I mean, you do, singers do think very carefully about what they eat. Also, for your colleagues, it's important. You don't want to eat a lot of garlic before you go and do a love scene. But no, usually it's okay. Indeed. But of course, this whole illness aspect has the other side of it, doesn't it? Because it can mean that somebody cancels and you need to jump in. Now, just a couple of years ago, this happened to you. This happened to you and it's probably the call that most musicians want to get at some stage in their lives and that is the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra ring you up and say, will you come and sing with us? Can you remember the call? I can remember that call clear as day because, I mean, it sounds cliche, but that was a phone call that changed my life completely. Mm-hmm. It took me from being, sure, a promising young artist working at an opera company to someone who suddenly was um, put on the stage in front of... Everyone was at that concert. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) The call, so what happened, I was in my second year of the Young Artist program here at the Deutsche Upper Berlin. That day, I was standing at Tegel Airport 
in the line about to get on an aeroplane to fly to Zurich for an audition. They did the call where they say, you know, we're boarding now from rows, whatever, one to 16 or something. And so those people were at the front of the line and I was at the back of the line just waiting for my row. And my agent called and I thought he might have been calling about the audition repertoire or anything. So I just answered, hi there. And he said, Siobhan, do you know Brahms Requiem? Mm -hmm. Yes. Would you be willing to sing it with the Berlin Philharmonic today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the concerts were actually in, this was on a Tuesday morning and the concerts were the Thursday, Friday, Saturday that week. But the first rehearsal was that afternoon. I said, of course, and my heart was racing. They still had to get the okay because it was Christian Thielemann conducting who, of course, is amazing and he had to give the final approval. So I hung up the phone and it probably was a couple of minutes but it felt like an eternity while I waited to see if he would call straight back. And he did and said, yes, you're on. So I had to check out of the flight. It's really lucky that I didn't have any luggage checked in under the plane. Otherwise, the whole thing would not have worked because I was able to just go to the air hostess. Everyone's getting on the plane. I'm really sorry I'm not getting this flight after all. So she clicked a button on the computer that unchecked me somehow. Mm-hmm. And then I got in a taxi and went to the Philharmonie, shook hands with Maestro Thielemann, sang it once with the orchestra, which in itself was just <laughs> unbelievable. The quality of the string sound of that orchestra, as you know, is a whole nother level. Little did I know that that first rehearsal, I mean, I'd been told that I had the gig, but they're, they're sensible and they just wanted to hear me first once. And after that first run, th- run through, um, Maestro Thielemann just turned around and gave a little subtle nod to the, the suits that had been sitting at the back of the hall, just waiting to check if I was up to scratch. And they got the nod and then they went away and prepared the contract and then the rest is history. So then two days later, I was seeing three sold out concerts that were also broadcast on the digital concert hall around the world. Angela Merkel, our Bundespräsident and was in the audience. Placido Domingo came straight up to me, shaking my hand after the concert. Christoph Waltz, a lot of people. I mean, that's just in the audience, but of course the concerts themselves were just unforgettable. I'll never forget. Christian Gerhard was the baritone soloist who is just extraordinary, and the orchestra. And it changed my life because then people took me a lot more seriously.
that year I also did jump in for a couple of other important things. I mean, it is interesting what you said about the other side of illness. That's also why I think it's a responsible thing to do when you are sick to, to actually open up that opportunity to someone else who's just waiting in the wings, waiting to get their big break. So that year I also jumped in for the Royal Opera House. They were doing a production at Shakespeare's Globe in the San Wanamaker Playhouse of a little-known opera by Luigi Rossi, which is from around the time of Monteverdi's operas, called Orfeo, Orpheus. And the girl who was singing the title role had been suffering. She'd been sick for a couple of weeks. And as I said, we all try to do. She was young and she was trying to soldier on and wasn't quite recovering because it's impossible when you're rehearsing six hours a day to really get better. And so they found themselves in a predicament. And I think what had happened is that my agent at the time had been meeting the casting director at Covent Garden the week before. He'd had his eye on me anyway for a couple of things and, and was just waiting for a chance to hire me, I suppose. And at the end of the meeting, my agent famously said, oh, and if you ever need anyone to jump in for things, Siobhan has the nerves for that. <laughs> <laughs> so when they found themselves in this situation, they called me and said, could you learn the title role of this opera? It opens in five days. So, again, the adrenaline, the heart racing. I jumped on a plane to London with the score. They'd emailed me through a PDF of this little-known piece. It was an English translation, which helped a lot because it's obviously a lot easier to, to memorise something in your own language. Being a, a Baroque piece, fortunately, I've sung a lot of Baroque repertoire in uh, my university days. Not really opera, but still you get used to that sort of harmonic language and how things work. So I just crammed like I'd never crammed before. And uh, suddenly I was on. So I had to sing the premiere and the second show from the balcony where the original girl acted it out on stage because it was quite a complex, beautiful production actually by Keith Warner. And then from the third show to the sixth show, I was on stage acting it out. So I had about a week in total to memorise this whole role. And that also really changed my life because it was from... I mean, I, I saved them, I guess, in a, in a mm. weird way, their premiere. So as something of a reward... Then two years later, I was able to make my main stage debut as Pamina in Ditzalbofurta at Covent Garden. A friend of mine once told me that all the dots line up in hindsight. It's hard to say this led to this, led to this, led to this. But when you look back, you start to see a little pattern of all the things that sort of lined up. Everything has a, a reaction that, you know, leads on to something else. It is indeed. But there is, of course, a very important aspect to all of this. And that is that you were prepared to actually take on that phenomenal stress of jumping in and doing something, learning something in five days. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, are you somebody that can memorise things quickly? I think I've been told that I can learn things relatively quickly, but mm. it's also to do with where I was at at that point. I don't know whether I would be able to do it or if I would want to do it now, because mm. now my schedule is different. I mean, I had this hunger at that stage. I, it was only my second year after moving from Australia and I was just, you know, raring to go and looking for every opportunity. It's a double-edged sword, if that's the expression, because often we're told we always have to know when to say no, and I, of course that's true. Sometimes if you get offered a part that's too big for your voice, you have to know when to say no. But also in my case, I think it was important to know when to say yes, because mm. it's quite a, kind of easy to feel scared and daunted. I mean, I absolutely felt daunted and nervous about all of these things. Also previously, the same season actually, maybe it was the year before, I had jumped in um, with Simone Young in Hamburg for Cordelia in Raimann's Lear, which is a very modern, not modern nowadays, but late 20th century. Every, I mean, everything that I did in those years was a challenge and a new thing, and I was always like, oh, I'm not quite sure, but thought someone's going to do it, so it may as well be me. <laughs> and in those cases, I mean, I knew the repertoire was right for me, so it was, but it was a challenge, I have to say. 
also, the, when you have that level of stress over many days in a row, it's not that healthy, I have to say. Mm. Like at the time, your body usually just deals with it. But it was after all, that year of doing all those amazing jump-ins that, that was then that I actually got that really sick mm. and then had to actually take a couple of weeks off when I lost my voice. So again, it was that double-edged sword, yin and yang. You know, it was great that I'd said yes to those opportunities, but then I also learned the importance of rest and mm. that it's okay to slow things down, to take the time you need. So I'm glad I did them, but now I'm learning a different sort of pacing, just trying to live in the moment and enjoy my projects that I've been booked for in advance and trying to do a good job of those. In fact, what you're saying reminds me of a phrase that Joan Sutherland said to me when I said to her, what do you say to young singers? And she said, hasten slowly. And she went... Hasten slowly. <laughs> she said, it took me a while to get the message, but they will eventually. Yeah, I think that's a great quote, actually. I haven't heard mm. that. Yeah, because it is tricky. Singers are often told, you know, be patient and, and, and wait, which is true, but the opposite is also true. That doesn't mean that you sit around every day and not do any work. It means work every day towards those, those long-term goals, but don't expect them to land on your feet tomorrow. Yeah, mm. step by step. And indeed, when you, you do any of these sort of gymnastics of jumping in, mm. you're also very reliant on the people around you, aren't you? And, and, you know, you mentioned there already your colleagues on stage, but the conductor in front of you and the people that give you the support to help you and, and see your willingness to do this, they're rather important, aren't they? Absolutely. I wouldn't have been able to learn any of these parts without the amazing musicians and coaches at the various opera houses who lock themselves into a small room with a piano and me. Yeah, it's a quite a unique and intimate connection that you have actually with your fellow musicians. It might sound cliche, but it is totally a team, team sport music. No one gets anywhere by themselves. If we look at the description of your voice, and of course, these are always funny things, voices, aren't they? Because they can change, they can do things. Lyric coloratura. And she comes from Australia. People think, of course, first of all, oh, well, that great lyric coloratura, Dame Joan Sutherland. But Australia's turned out so many wonderful singers over the years. What sort of a role have these figures actually played in, in your studies as you've gone along and seen the sort of repertoire they've sung, done how they've developed their career? Not necessarily just the Australian ones, but let's start with those. I have become more aware of them more recently, in recent years now that I'm in Europe, actually. To be honest, when I was in Mildura, I don't think I'd heard of any of those classical singers. So it wasn't until I went to uni that I, that I heard of them. And, but now I have to say it's quite special when... So we did a production of Maya Beer, Les Huguenots, mm. the Huguenots, last year, in which I sang Marguerite de Valois, which was one of Dame Joan Sutherland's main roles. And, I mean, obviously she's a phenomenon. I regret that I never got to hear her sing live. I've only got the recordings to listen to now. But I did feel proud to be singing a role that's not so well known that such a special Australian had made famous around the world. About other singers, of course, we're always, it's inevitable that you're looking over your shoulders and, and looking at what other people have done, the progression in roles and at what age they did certain roles or where and when. But no path is exactly the same as yours. So it can be a tricky path to go down because this is such a unique thing. Sometimes you don't know whether a, suit, a role will suit you until you actually sing through it properly or even until you do a production and then you think, no, that wasn't right. It's an educated gamble in a way. Uh, if I've understood this correctly, sometimes the voice actually changes to maybe better accommodate a particular party tour. I think that can happen. And I also think that the way we hear a voice is subconsciously flavoured by that person, how they feel about the character or the role. 
it's not just what the notes look like on the page. Some roles, people, you would think because of my range that would be perfect for me, but they don't suit me at all. For example, I just came back from Munich. We were doing Ariadne auf Naxos at the Bayerische Staatsoper. And I was singing Nayade, which is the highest of Ariadne's nymphs, with a lot of high coloratura. And a lot of people, after they sing Nayade, would go on to sing Zerbinetta, mm-hmm. Edita Gruberova's signature role. And, but interestingly for me, it's not a great fit. I can sing the notes that are on the page. I do it sometimes as a technical warm-up. But it's a different sort of vocalism because the character is, uh, how to describe it? She's party animal, Absolutely. flirtatious, but, but that doesn't really describe why I, it doesn't suit me because I can, <laughs> I can play, I mean, this Celina in The Last Don Giovanni is a party animal and, and very flirtatious and all those things. But there's a physicality about the way that Serbinetta has to jump and run around on stage all the while singing staccato and extremely high notes, which I don't feel as my kind of spirit animal within me. It's not what gets me going. What gets me going is a lyric part, like, to listen to anyway, Mimi and Bohem. Not that I would sing that yet, but I think that's the direction that I'm going in. Mm-hmm. Even though my voice is higher set at the moment, it's still travelling on that road rather than the extremely high path like Queen of the Night. I would never sing Queen of the Night. I'd sing Pamina. I think it does have a lot to do with your personality. Some opera singers feel that they are stage animals who learned to sing or learned how to be musicians. And some opera singers feel like they're musicians or singers who then learned how to behave on stage. And personally, I would relate to the latter. I came from, as I said, being in a choir, sight reading, the music and the harmony and everything. For me, that's my first love and then being on stage. Don't get me wrong, I do love being a character Mm. and playing on stage. I was the kid growing up who wanted to listen to music and sing as opposed to just be a clown and and make people laugh. Yeah, it's a a funny little nuance and difference there. gesticulating in a particular way or doing extreme body movements. When I say the word acting, that's not what I mean. I mean thinking the thoughts of a character and using those thoughts to inform the way that you sing a particular phrase or shape a phrase or colour a word. It's your feelings and how you display them. So in that way, I think that they're one and the same. But to me then, taking that a step further, when I sing a concert, it's the same. I still act in a concert in a weird way. Even though I'm not in costume and I'm not playing a character... But I still, when I sing Brahms' Requiem, the text, Ihr habt nun Traurigkeit, this um, text about consolation, I still have to sing that with as much acting, in inverted commas, as I do in opera, mm. if that makes sense, with the same emotion, the same colour, the same expression, mm. exactly, even mm. though I'm not running around. Mm. So to me, that's an intellectual and mental and emotive psychological thing rather than a physical thing. Siobhan, you are also from the generation of of young artists who have basically grown up with Facebook, with, you know, social media, with all of this aspect of your career as well. Um, You're quite active 
in that respect. You post regularly, you write, you do little bits and pieces, you have photos of yourself on Instagram, you do all sorts of things in that respect. How important is that? Hmm, it's a tricky question to answer because certainly it's become quite fashionable to maintain a big online presence and all of the other singers that I look up to do it. So I guess we all feel it's necessary. I'm not sure whether that correlates in terms getting work. It depends what you mean by career. I think it definitely helps um, to build a fan base because a lot of people, especially the younger generation, that's their platform. So if they go to a concert and there's an artist that they like, they'll go on and like it on Facebook. So in terms of yeah, building that um, network of support and fans, I guess, it can be useful. I'm not sure whether casting directors or any of those people are so interested Although I did, a few years ago, a friend who worked for one of the major record labels said that they did, they were aware of it. They certainly, if they were looking at a couple of artists to sign and someone had a, on their page, on their social media pages, hundreds of thousands of likes, for them that's, it's a sign that they've got a huge selling base of people who are going to buy that music. So it might help them sway their decision in that way. Um, it's hard to know. Basically, it's, I just use it as a way to keep in touch with people that I know, mainly in Australia. Because a lot of people, keep, that's how they keep up to date with what I'm up to, with pictures. Everyone likes to see a pretty co- a picture of a costume of the latest, what I'm wearing in the latest show. It's also become popular. I mean, a lot of people do the, the live videos now backstage from their dressing rooms. I've not done that so much, but it's evolving all the time. It's hard to say what it means because we're too in the thick of it right now. I guess in decades to come, historians will be saying, yes, yeah, so in the <laughs> 2000 and yeah. the artists were doing this because of this, this and this. But yeah, it's certainly what we do these days, announcing seasons. And I think it's for the fans, basically. And it is nice, actually, because it allows an immediacy of feedback that I guess we couldn't get in, um, in, in the past before Facebook. You post a picture of a costume and you have several hundred people liking it and telling you that you look cute. It always makes you feel good before you go on stage, I suppose. But I do think that um, it's not completely positive though these social medias I think I I actually describe it privately as a necessary evil (laughs) because sometimes I mean I'm fortunate that I haven't been the victim of it but people can get quite nasty on these Mm. forums as well Twitter with with reviews and and things I'm not sure I think if you use it for good and not evil then it can (laughs) be quite helpful but we need to be careful and be kind I think touched on of course the the private aspect of your career now you recently got married I don't think that's a big secret and I can only imagine that it must be quite difficult balancing a fairly full-on career that you have as well as well as you said a husband but also friends and keeping contact with people who live thousands of miles away and all the rest of it is it a bit of a balancing act for you is it difficult Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, full stop. Yes, because people um, seem to think that, that, that an opera singer is a glamorous career, but of course it's, it's, it's hard work, right? That's what Facebook does. It makes it look only glamorous. <laughs> they don't, no one sees the, the early mornings and what you look like when you're going to the airport, do they? Your suitcase <laughs> and a grumpy face before you have your coffee. No, of course, life is hard for anyone. Everyone's mm. schedules, it's always difficult to juggle all your responsibilities to family and life and, and work. And I don't know if it's harder as an artist but 
it's it, I guess at least because you're traveling so much you have to make it a priority to yeah stay connected to your loved ones for me and my now husband as I can say we had to do three years of long distance Australia to Berlin when I first moved here and, and that was the hardest time I guess but now he's moved to Berlin and yeah he's just quite good at holding the fort when I'm away but it's a lot of time at uh, airports really being an artist that's what people don't realize <laughs> but I do think that and actually everyone who tells me people who have families and things that it's so important to keep that private part of your life balanced and happy and healthy actually f for the benefit of your work life as well because you're if you're happier in your private life you're going to feel more whole and have more things to actually say when you're on stage I think that the idea of the suffering artist is not always the most accurate or most helpful well as we know artists are neurotic enough anyway it's what was that great quote is it mark twain which is i've i've suffered many things in my life most of which never happened or something <laughs> like that most of the time we we i guess it's just part of the human condition you know we worry about so many things that never actually happen i'm trying to just enjoy life at the moment and mm. and make the most of each day Sean Stagg, thank you so much for talking to me today it's been great pleasure my pleasure as well thanks brendan Siobhan Stagg talking to me there. If you'd like to find out more about Siobhan's work, then do visit the Tall Poppies website, tall-poppies.com, or send us an email to info at tall-poppies.com. Info at tall-poppies.com. Tall Poppies, the podcast, was produced in Berlin by me, Brandon O'Shea. Very special thanks to my exceptional sound engineer, Jürgen Kuhn, who helped put together today's podcast. It was nice to have you with me. I'm Brendan O'Shea and I look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of Tall Poppies, the podcast, very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.